Hey, uh, folks, this is your editor speaking. We were unable to recover our guest's isolated audio, so to bring you his insights for this episode, we were forced to use the master audio track. Because of that, you may hear voices raise or lower in intensity here or there as we need to foreground one or another track to prevent comments from doubling up or echoing. And you may occasionally hear the sort of shuffling or coughing noises I normally labor to hide from you. Whatever you do, don't hold it against our guest. Or us. Because for us, podcasting is a way of life. But I have come to think that it is better to deal with reality. No matter how unpleasant it is. That's my guy. Welcome back to Quaid in Full, the podcast with all the fox to give about actor Dennis Quaid. I'm radicalized Cape Cod chips consumer Sarah DeBunting, and I'm here, as always, with Buffy villain turned novelty contestant Jeb Lunt. Hello, Jeb. Hi, I'm looking at some newspapers. <laughs> Joining us today is Television Without Pity's American Idol recapper Emeritissimus, host of This Had Oscar Buzz, and unemployed bar patron Joe Reed. Hello, Joe. Hello. Picture me with like a cigarette in the back room of a bar, just taking a long drag and being like, I had American Idol. I haven't heard that name in a long time. (laughs) (laughs) It was a lot to revisit. (laughs) Yeah, it really was starting with John Cho's hair. But first of all, I would be remiss if the masked ass overlap audience didn't get to hear this. Wouldn't be a guest appearance without it. No, it really wouldn't. Uh, Before we get into what you know, Joe, uh, let's find out what Jeb knows about whether we have any pod business. I don't think we do. I think we're free and clear again. I I think we are. I think we got away with it. And I'm not going to invoke a certain counter because I think that's in the triple digits now. And that's where we like it. So let's get into the plot summary. Imagine a country where the president never reads the newspaper, where the government goes to war for all the wrong reasons, and where more people vote for a pop idol than their next president. That's the world according to the poster for 2006's American Dreams. The word dreams ends in a Z as the theme song of this universe's American Idol makes sure to remind us. Written and directed by Paul Weitz, which also ends in a Z of the American Pie franchise, as well as previous Dennis Quaid property in Good Company, American Dreams retails the same first thought, quote, satire and try-hard feints at Morton commentary as it tries to send up both George W. Bush as puppet simpleton and American Idol's curdled promises of democratically achieved stardom in the mid-aughts. But I'm here to talk about the plot. American Dreams is on the eve of a new season. The film's Simon Cowell, Martin Tweed, Hugh Grant trying to nuance a role that doesn't want that, is burned out, but he manages to get it up to order his flunkies, the well-overcast Judy Greer, John Cho, and John Cho's utterly mid-aughts Dick Casablanca's hair, (laughs) to find him some, quote, freaks for the next round of competition. Among their finds, so-called white trash Sally Kendu, Mandy Moore, who has a stage mom played by Jennifer Coolidge and a puppyishly devoted thank-him-for-his-backstory-service boyfriend played by Chris Klein. Uh, 
A show tunes belting Iraqi sleeper cellmate Omer, Sam Golzari, and various other idol capital T types, including a yarmulke wearing rap rocker played by Warren from Buffy. <laughs> Omer, initially parked in Southern California to keep him out of the way, is reassigned by his handlers to suicide bomb the Dreams finale once it's announced that Gormless W. Clone President Staten, that's Dennis Quaid, will be judging that episode in an attempt to re-engage with the American people on a question mark. Will Omer's love of his adoptive country slash desire to win its most popular show override his fidelity to cause? Can President Staten cope with the demands of live competition reality television once the earpiece a bald-capped Willem Dafoe uses to chainy him has fallen out? And is terrible advice contagious as not one but two Best Supporting Actress contenders, both of whom went on to regrettably high-profile SUV guest shots, were apparently convinced that this script had something to say or anything with multiple dimensions for them to do? That's kind of it. I mean, I would say I don't want to spoil the ending, but I mean, Chris Klein goes boom. Everybody gets what they want. Satire? And a question mark? Did I miss anything plot wise, gentlemen? A lot of plot. It's it's trying to do two things at once, and I think it only does one of them kind of well. Um, unfortunately, Dennis Quaid resides in the half of the movie that I think doesn't get... <laughs> done as well i think it's a it's a much sharper and more accurate satire of american idol than it is of american presidential politics at the time and i think its big weakness to me is how it if the message of this movie is american politics is like reality television it does not manage to make that connection strongly enough and i think part of the problem unfortunately is that dennis quaid's performance doesn't do enough and isn't and isn't the, that characterization is falling short of the idea of if the idea is that an american politician just needs to win over people like you would for a reality show this is a really dull version of george w bush and that's kind of saying something i feel like <laughs> yeah I agree with you. I think that when this movie hits, first of all, it is the idle stuff. I agree with you on that. And it's because it's trying to have a foot in both of these satirical worlds so as not to have to commit to either of them fully. And sometimes the American Idol stuff seemed to succeed better because it was faster and more throwaway and not as considered. But Jeb, where did you land on yeah, I, I think you're both right, at least in part. I do think that the connection between like the idol satire and the, the presidential satire isn't underlined enough. I think Joe's right about that, like that mm. we don't have enough connective tissue to make these sort of twinned indictments. Right. Um, I did wind up kind of writing a, a like a mini essay because I was thinking about this um, this movie a lot and I'll cut most of it out. But um, the thing that seemed to me to be the liability of the movie was the whole plot with Marsha Gay Harden as the Laura Bushman K. Right. Because it keeps you from developing Quaid's Bush Man K character more and giving and, and building that connective tissue. The other problem is that, like, just talking about satire, one of the reasons that I think, like, Dr. Strangelove works really well is it's about identifiable American characters without being about a character. Mm. So, like, if you watch it, you know, President Merkin Muffley looks more like Adlai Stevenson than Eisenhower. He has the physical timidity of Truman and he talks like a de-vocal fried 
Dean Acheson, right? So like the idea <laughs> that you're watching it for like, oh, they're going to give it to that Ike motherfucker. Like there's never a moment where, you know, you exp you're let down by the fact that this is a variation of a real life character and they're finally getting some sort of comeuppance. Whereas because this is so reliant on, okay, this is obviously this character, you're doing things like the thing that I was doing is like, oh, well, it's nice. They made, you know, Marsha Gay Harden's great. She looks like a terrified doe. You know, she's like trembling in some of those early scenes dealing with her husband and you know, she's a delight to watch. But at the same time, I'm like, oh, that's that's Laura Bush. She murdered a guy with her car. Right. Yeah. She was a teenager because, you know, and I think of that because she literally did that. And like and then I start thinking, you know, I never killed a guy with a car when I was a teenager and I was a fuck up. Why are we rehabilitating this person and then ending the movie where she is the second most powerful person in the executive in the country because she's a nice wife? And instead, like, you know, what I would have liked to have seen is if you cut her out, I don't have to reckon with like, oh, now I got to have feelings about Laura Bush. Right. I only have to have feelings about George and Cheney. And I get that they make Defoe this kind of like Joe Besser, like slap sticking around behind, you know, in the background of Idol. And there's a utility to having him be sort of slapsticky. But like, that's also asking me to reckon with a lot. So like, don't pour extra on. Instead, like I would have liked to have seen Omer's character. We were told we get a backstory for him that's supposed to be affecting. His mom was killed by an American bomb. He finally gets to confront the president and instead the president gives this like half-assed apology and he gently corrects him. And that's the only kind of like progress we see on there. He never says like, you know, that was a nice apology, but I need you to try harder because you dropped a bomb on my fucking mom, dude. And maybe we could get sort of there if like the process of like the, the thing that was a tell to me is like there's a fun throwaway joke about Quade Bush with the, the bug in his ear macking on like Carmen Electra and like being the wingman for Dick Cheney, who's like using him as a mouthpiece to like wingman himself in front of Carmen Electra. They mention it. That's a funny thing, but that could have built out more of the, yeah. the plasticine popularity glad handing aspect where you're getting different layers of unreal president for different audiences. And maybe you underline the, the, the way that it dovetails with idol, but instead they missed it. And instead, we don't get that moment where Omer can actually, like, own his outrage. He's got legitimate outrage, but it goes completely unexpressed for this chicken shit, or I guess, like, chicken snitch thing, where, like, he turns around and snitches on the guys who seem to be actually somewhat on board with his message. I made a note of that, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Where, like, that, of all the ways that, like, this movie gets made differently uh, now, that definitely wouldn't have been in there. But also, I think, if you're right, if, if Omer is able to vocalize his beef with the president and with the country, then maybe you have a little bit of tension that he might actually go through with this plot. Because as it is, there's absolutely no tension. There is no way you believe for a second that he's actually going to go through with this because nothing in his character communicates that he would. Yeah, and and I mean, it, it starts to hit that problem that all satire gets in that third or fifth act where it's got to suddenly do expository and it can't do daffy or slapstick and the, the humor falls away and i was actually just sort of groaning into it and i was turning to the person i was watching with going like you know here we go and then you get that incredibly savagely funny dumb line from chris klein about like you know would an idiot put this bomb he just found on and blow himself up you know? <laughs> yeah and, and like for all the toothlessness that goes in i mean we still have a concluding scene where the american fighting man who has vowed to die for a lady liberty avatar that has hoard herself to capital, then kills himself trying to stay alive. And for whatever else you might want to say about the movie, they 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 knew how hard they wanted to go on some things, and they did it in a way that I think is is creditable in the the tradition of good satire. 
I mean, that's a pretty ruthless conclusion. And it still has one of the best laugh lines in the movie. Climbing's well, good, I will they say. They have moments with Mandy Moore's character where, like, it's it's written clumsily, but she can sell it that yes. she's like, you know, I don't have feelings for other people, but if I did... Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, her decision, like, this sort of Moebius of capitalism and sort of um, poisoned patriotism is like right i don't think the movie like had time to work it out to the last step of the problem exactly and that's probably best like it feels rushed and first drafty in a lot of spots but i don't think thinking it through necessarily would have improved matters because like i said the touch with the idol stuff is much more instinctual and better and mm -hmm. more assured yeah. but they cut a corner with the idol stuff a little bit in having hugh grant play the sort of the simon and the ryan seacrest both yeah. at yeah. once you know he's both host and judge and ep so he's also kind of simon fuller like he's he's all of that uh wrapped up in it, which is fine cut that corner i think mandy moore is really good and is kind of a really interesting character and like more interesting than maybe a lesser movie would have required her to be in terms of how in on the joke she is and in on the cynicism of all of it that she is. And I think it's it's a nice way to end it that she ends up as the host, that she sort of like ends up sort of getting not exactly what she wants in the pop career, but as, you know, she, this incredibly cynically put together figure has now out on top on the backs of these two guys who are now dead and and that's sort of the end of the story there and i think that part of it ends a lot more sharply than the w analog stuff ends which is as you said jeb it's like it's soft and it's cutesy and it's you know carrying water a little bit for that yeah well, and there's also this uncanny valley thing happening as jeb sort of pointed out that it's like because it's not because it's not satirizing a type, it's satirizing a specific person. Occasionally, Dennis Quaid has a line reading that is exactly W. Yeah. But most of the rest of the time, he's just, you know, from East Cornpone, Texas. And it's like, okay, are we actually trying to do something here? And I mean, this came out in 2006. Like, our preoccupation with how stupid this person was seems extremely quaint from this distance even though like this guy is a war criminal and we should should not be reminiscing fondly about him choking on a pretzel and right etc the movie that this sort of reminded me of kind of a lot and not necessarily like i don't think it's as good obviously but it reminded me of dick the uh yeah kirsten mm -hmm. dunst michelle williams movie that i think does this a lot better i think partially because it has a couple of decades worth of distance and right. can kind of look back and be sillier about it. I think <clears throat> trying to make the W era satire while we're still in the W era is a tall order and ultimately, I think, fails the movie. It's also culture now in 2022. We're just on the precipice of this like mid aughts nostalgia, right? We've done 80s, we've done 90s, we're at like early aughts, like Girls 5 Eva is that sort of like 2000 mm -hmm. bit of, mm -hmm. you know, uh, nostalgia. And I, what I think is interesting is I'm less interested in nostalgia for that era as going back and looking at 
the films and TV and sort of culture of that, like, post-9-11 pre-Katrina era, that specific era, where, like, you watch anything like there and the the tone of everything and the attitude of everything is, like, scarily sort of, like, transporting. I remember watching this movie, I was like, oh, right, the only thing people talked about with Bush was this idea that he was dumb. And, like, that was the ball that people sort of took with and ran with it and was this very sort of, like, one-dimensional way to encapsulate this guy who was also dangerous in eight billion ways and the the the, it's not that he wasn't dumb but it's just like the fact that he was so easily pliable by other people it's like what did that mean and what did that sort what were the implications of all of that and not that i would expect a movie like american dreams to unpack all of that but it, it really was a reminder that like oh right we were we were still very much forest for the trees in terms of like how we were seeing all of this that was happening around if that makes sense Mm -hmm. yeah i mean it was the the freedom fries era right exactly you know some things are the same but some things are very different and i don't think this movie is equipped to cast itself forward in time nor is it trying to do that nor is it obliged to do that but this just seemed like that part of it was they bit off more than they could chew yeah with that I also it. think it's it's evident in again I think the TV satire is a lot sharper than the political one this idea that like back in that era you had to make the cynical play for patriotism on your show or else you could not be a mainstream television program you know what I mean like you right. go back to you know if you remember any of that idol stuff all those like contestants who you know went out there and and saying god bless the usa as a cynical ploy for votes you know what i mean like that kind of a thing is the stuff that i really remember from that era well and people literally getting ejected from yankee stadium for not singing god bless america like right you know this this shit was definitely part of the culture but looking at it from this distance it's like if you're gonna go after it go after it and if you're not like I, I actually literally have to go to a protest. Can we speed this up a little bit? So right. anyway, let me get into um, some contemporary reviews very quickly. We'll link these in the show notes. But um, this was not well regarded except by Ebert, who was having one of those days he often seems to have when he's at a Dennis Quaid movie that he's like, well, uh, you know, it's trying to do something. And I chuckled a few times. So three stars out of four. And he also cited Byron in his review because, you know, you got to make your own fun. Good for you, Raj. Manola Dargis thought it was unfunny, and she cited Aristophanes in her review like, guys, there's making your own fun, and then there's making me want to step off the patio. Then Nathan Rabin at AV Club pretty much nailed it. He called it diverting without being particularly compelling and amusing without being terribly funny. And I think that's about right. Like, I'm not angry at this movie and i don't think i missed anything that it was trying to do i just think it was kind of a soft b minus at doing it in aggregate with a couple good performances yeah i think a couple good performances mandy moore chris klein i also really liked the the kid who played iqbal the uh cousin of oh yeah the the uh, most the contestant. goth Iraqi in history. I love that dude. <laughs> also, like, that is a portrayal of a, like, incredibly recognizable 
wonderfully nightmare gay kid, like gay teen who was super into American Idol, like that, like I know the kid, the, the guy that that kid grew up to be. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I met we that kicked person. like seventeen oh, totally. thousand totally. of that kid off the American Idol boards back in the day for not taking caps lock off. Good times. Yes, exactly, exactly right. That's exactly right. And I was sort of I because I'd seen this movie when it came out, whether it was in theaters or like on DVD right after, I can't remember. But I misremembered his character having more of a role in the end game of this movie. For whatever reason, I thought he sort of re-entered the plot in a bigger way, and he kind of doesn't. And I was sort of bummed because I was like, this is a really sharp characterization, and I wanted that. I wanted him to sort of step up more into it, but alas. I sort of wanted to see more of that whole family. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Actually... Because that's a like oh, yeah. Shaw's of Love Sunset sure. type for sure. We had we had the New Jersey version where I grew up. Like, I mean, that was so much more interesting to me than like, okay, the idle journey. Like, I feel like my I feel like my eyes are open to that already. The reviews, I get where the reviews are coming from, but I did want to just say, like, you know, I remember reading contemporary reviews again, just to bring it back to Strange Love, because that seems to be like a political satire touchstone for everybody. Like yeah. coming out the year after the Cuban Missile Crisis. My mom had a good ear for satire. She enjoyed it. But like she lived next to one of America's largest nuclearly armed military installations about like 500 miles from Cuba. Things were not going to go well for her. The movie, yeah. when it came out, was like, this is really well done, but it's not that funny. And I think it really did take a couple of years of people who didn't live through the exact moments that seemed like a direct parallel to it to find the humor. And I didn't see this when it came out, this movie. So when I was watching it, I laughed like really hard at a lot of things. I was like, that's a really good joke. Uh, that that's well done. That's a, you know, Chris Klein saying like, you know, I'm just got promoted to assistant manager. You know what happens after that? And I'm like, he's going to say manager. He's going to say manager. And he said manager. And it was like, it was still perfect. It was exactly the way you wanted that dumb. You know, what comes next manager like oh yes you know um <laughs> but i i have the privilege of like even though i remember this intensely and this is something i did for work think about this stuff i with that distance can now like i don't feel shortchanged by not getting a different kind of humor it is you know they picked their their style uh, of humor and they remain consistent with it and it is surprisingly acid-tongued at some points and surprisingly empathetic to the point where you're going like Hugh Grant just wants to, he wants somebody to kill him. Yeah. <laughs> he, he wants to be murdered right now. This is great. This is so funny. <laughs> yeah. Hugh Grant's actually also very good at this. I think, Sarah, you mentioned that you sort of bringing more than the role requires in a, in a way that you can feel that where that like brushes up against it. But I think he's actually doing a very good job. Yeah. There are, there are a couple of moments where sort of at the edge of the frame, there is like a legitimate, very like navy blue tragedy happening around the corners of this and sometimes the acting brushes up against it and like everything that we know about like chris klein in his life and that notorious audition tape and there he is like pantsing around with that terrible wig on that looks like he and john cho just like divided custody of this wig well and <laughs> speaking of that audition video though this movie plays into that because this is the move this uh at the beginning of that video he's in his alleged 
coked out, whatever. I don't know. I don't know what anybody uh, was taking. But at the very beginning of that, he's talking about Mandy Moore and he's saying, you you auditioned Mandy Moore. I worked with her on American Dreams. She's an angel. She's the best. She's got the greatest singing voice. You should hire her on the spot. And he's like going over and over and over the top. And and I actually went back and watched it again because I was like, oh, right. American Dreams. That's where it all started from. Yeah, we actually have a clip that I pulled sort of to illustrate this point in the movie where it thinks it needs to stop and orient us like this is not like Porky's thing that you might be expecting from this team. We're trying to do something here. And the fact that they're all from Paducah, Ohio is like, okay, like did the Chamber of Commerce of actual Paducah, Kentucky decide that they weren't going to allow that because I, I kind of get it. But, uh, the delivery here from Chris Klein really goes a long way towards selling what is actually a little bit condescending on the scripts part. Sally, this is your dream. You've always wanted to be on TV. No, I've always wanted to be a star. Is that the same thing? No, Willie, it's not the same thing. Any idiot can be on TV nowadays. All you have to do is swap your wife for eat a sheep's anus or something. Yes, yes, but you are going to sing. <laughs> Yes. Yes. And he's gesturing with a chicken wing. <laughs> like, it shouldn't work. You know, it shouldn't work. But he can do a few things extremely well. He's called upon for all of them in this role, and he does all of them extremely well. So Chris Clyde, everybody. The performance really underlines the fact that, like, Chris Klein's ideal form has always been Paul Metzler from Election. Yes. And his best stuff is the stuff that he's sort of close to that. And this this role was a spiritual cousin to Paul Metzler. I really appreciated that. It, it really was. <laughs> Bless Paul Metzler. There's pure galoot in that boy. You got to let that out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm prepared to rate this. If you guys are, Joe, would you like to kick us off with your rating on a scale of one to 10 overall? How did you find this movie? The movie in and of itself was better than I remembered, but still sort of fundamentally flawed i probably give it a six out of ten okay jeb i'll go one higher i'll give it a seven just because i think it's consistently entertaining doesn't fall apart as much as as satire does hits 50 percent of its marks really well with the satire and still lands some good stuff on um the bush administration and, and bush in general pretty much everybody's doing a great job in this like i don't think there's any one performance where i'm like yeah you're the dead weight here pal like everybody as you're saying is bringing in a little bit of a shading or a depth that i think adheres to the character that the script doesn't let us see but their their acting manages to exude so while it's not like you know a devastating knockout blow satirically or or comically like you know sit down it's, it's a good use of your time um i'm not quite there um i initially started at a five and then i ticked it up half a point for the um osmond's portable record player which like that's that's just (laughs) science so i'm gonna go with the five and a half i'm not mad at this movie and i'm not mad at having watched it but i am all set all right moving along to the Quaid qua Quaid, in which we assess the Quaidosity. This is um, often a deeply personal and subjective journey, but we can sometimes learn a lot from uh, each other's walking a mile in each other's Quaid slippers. I don't know. Um, Here's a clip in which they're really leaning on the George and Laura mythos in a way that I don't think works, but there's some interesting things going on in the performance in clip three. I guess 
I kind of feel like I'm a placebo. I mean, I've had speechwriters writing for me all my career and advisors telling me what positions to take. I can't even remember why I wanted to get into politics to begin with. I think it's because my mom wanted me to. Show my dad any idiot could do it. Maybe I ought to just chuck the whole thing. What do you think? Start with that American dream deal. I don't you say that. Do you remember what I said the first time I met you? Yeah. Hey, jerk off, you spill your beer on me. <laughs> <laughs> this is sort of the my issue with this half of the movie. In a nutshell, it sort of brushes up against something that is interesting and real, which is this W. Man K being like, why did I get into politics to show the old man a thing or two? Like, okay, duh. Say more about that. And then they're back to, you know, I used to be a shit kicker, but for the love of a vehicular manslaughtering school teacher, et cetera, and so on. Um, <laughs> but with that said... And I have another clip, which is short, and it, like, is where he nails the W imitation the most. But given that this is not entirely committed to or thought through, I think Dennis Quaid is pretty good. Yeah, I agree. I wonder if your clip was the uh, the bit where he's like, you know, there are three different Iraqistan. <laughs> he says, uh, you mean uh, Sunni, Shia, and, and Kurd? He says, you knew about this? <laughs> you knew about this? That was in the conversation. But I actually went with this one. It's just short. So, what do you think of these two great contestants, Mr. President? I think they exhibit what's best about America. The spirit of resolve. A spirit of resolve that makes this the greatest country in the world. I mean, that shit's uncanny. Like the that world. The, yeah. The yeah. first part of it, it's absolutely 100% Dennis Quaid. And then Cheney's in his ear, and then he's W. It was really something. Yeah. I'm not sure it was something good. <laughs> we talk a lot about, like, what is your archetype of Quaid? Right. And especially as he's changing with age and going, you know, into DILF and then sort of, like, a sexualized grandfather I'd like to fuck territory. I don't know. You know, but, like... <laughs> As the sort of like vulpine, sexually beguiling Quaid subsides, we get more into like what he's done well with galoot work. And this is like, to use the word again, like this is some great galoot work on his part. And I don't know how much of um, like what you said, Sarah, that where he seems to be Quaidy and then the bush turns on. I don't know how much of that is just his sort of laziness with accents, because like you're from Texas, man, you be able, you should be able to hold that one. Or if it is trying to denote a little bit of difference between his private persona and his stage persona. But it still works, even if it's a mistake, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, like, it really does sort of get at the, like, this guy's just a big, handsome goober, which seems to be a lot of Dennis work. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I actually have a clip still rattling around from a few episodes ago of his uh, Bill Clinton, that's what she said. So here's that. That's what she said. I mean, I like. I guess he's trying to do some Vaughn meter of the turn of the millennium thing. Like we're in a weird place with gauging the quadosity right now, yeah. and 
Joe, we apologize to you for putting you at this sort of crossroads of like, there's the vulpinity from the 80s, and then there's the Dilfy 90s reimagining, and then we're kind of on the hem of, he's doing a lot more children's content, but then we're also on the hem of this weird period where he plays a lot of like, bad Ronald types where he's like stalking and terrorizing people and won't move out of their houses. It's like Pacific Heights of Houston. I don't. It's that or like <laughs> retired major general stuff, right? Like that, mm-hmm. that stuff is on the way, I think too, where you get like his ninja G.I. Joe or, or vantage point coming up for you guys. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that this is that this is his second Paul White's movie after in good company that clearly Paul White's enjoyed working with him enough to cast him in his next movie. I haven't seen in good company in decades. So I'm not sure exactly how I remember, obviously like the role there is the kind of, you know, intimidating dad, right? He's the one who Topher Grace doesn't measure up to, I imagine. Right. That's the sort of the concept of that movie. My vision of Dennis Quaid, my version of him sort of exists in my mind, is somewhere in the range of the inner space Quaid to the Bonnie Raitt thing called Love music video, Dennis Quaid. Like that kind of version of just like super hot, cut off shirt, you know. um, You're in in good company with that. Yeah, pardon my saying. Yeah, (laughs) no pun intended. Um, This era of Quaid is interesting, I think. Ultimately, again, it comes down to for me, for him in this movie, in American Dreams, that one of the things I love about Dennis is how easily charismatic he can be. And I think American Dreams needed that. And for some reason, I don't think it gets enough of it. And that kind of bums me out. Well, the Tara Ariano honorary metric does this guy fuck. I mean, there's a cutaway in this movie and we're we're supposed to think, you know, it's the the first fuck pad after the cut but it's like i don't necessarily buy it from this character so in terms of like i think we're in a phase with his career overall where not only is he going in a more family friendly pg not even pg-13 direction generally but that that's that just puts his natural light under a bushel to some extent um so Mm. he's you know you have a bunch of axes how much is he in the movie how good is he in the movie how you know much of that is his is under his control does this character fuck uh i don't think he does but other than that and you do get a couple of grin grinstances uh oh man so sorry (laughs) you know (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no i pull that shit all the time it's fair go yeah. on, keep going. <laughs> yeah i mean you can cut it you have the power um but yeah i just this one was hard to rate because this felt both sort of good and possibly typical of this era of quaid's oeuvre but also like a i'm not sure and b pg quaid with no hint of 13 is like a little disconcerting and hard to put a number on yeah but he's good i just don't know how quaint he is part of it is also that just completely by accident i also watched postcards from the edge again over this weekend Uh, and i was like that is that's ideal quaid 
like for I, me that is sort of right in the sweet spot of where he exists in my mind in my uh, cultural imagination yeah i'm glad you said that because i was wondering why the studio smelled like catalina <laughs> <laughs> um also sarah i'll put it to you he does fuck but he only fucks up all right because he's playing bush so that counts okay well you seem pretty confident would you like to begin the quadosity rating i mean i sure i I kind of wanted to just go ahead and do seven two, but I don't know if that's too generous. I mean, because we are, like you say, you know, there's it's not PG thirteen; it's just PG. I don't know how much of like the Quaid uh, rascaliness he could have winked his way through there or into the plot. And since we are in this sort of like you know amorphous Quaid category reshuffling, uh, with what he was asked to do, he put all the charm you would want on it, especially because like whites as a writer seem not to want to commit to bush as being an evil person mm. there's very much still of that like you know pre-2006 when we start to get the um warrantless wiretapping nsa stories come out after the new york times sat on them through the election and for like another year and you start to see the facade of bush's sort of like you know how does this idiot never lose kind of thing like by 20 2006 at the end he's crushed in the midterms and you have like yeah 2006 is where it falls apart yeah but up until then, right, like with this preoccupation that you want to believe that this guy could be good if ever, like the advisors who kept him out of the library accidentally locked him in there, like that sort of optimism, like in, in search of a pretext that, that undergirds <laughs> mm -hmm. this right. works with how Quaid is handling it. Right. And I think if he were a little bit more rapacious and there were more winks, you'd be getting dangerously into like, why are you expecting me to sympathize with this guy? You're making him a predator anyway. I already know he's a predator. I live through this shit. So I don't know. I mean, like, just given how thin that line is, like, among all these different Quaid constituencies and also of the satire's needs, I think it's fairly nimbly done. I wish I'd had more time to sit and do, like, a an accent watch to see if the pliability or the, I guess, the code switching of his accent actually fit the plotter if it was just laziness. But I don't know. Maybe I'm being way too generous. So you came in at a seven? Yeah, again, I just I like that prime number. I'm going to go six and a half just because, and this is not his fault, but I would fall on the side of laziness in terms of the code switching. I think he doesn't have good control of his accent. We've seen it a million times, and I wish people would just be like, the character is originally from Texas. Do whatever you want in your minds with the fanfic, but let's not ask him to be from places like Connecticut or Kansas. Mm -hmm. But I, I think he also, perhaps inadvertently like opens a, a kind of Reagan channel in terms of like the surface president as actor thing that the script doesn't support him on. But because this is an actor playing a president who was once played by an actor like that Moebius does that work for him. So I'm mm -hmm. I'm not sure how much credit to give him along all those lines, but he is good and watchable. And those moments when the W is full strength it's creepy there's kind of an uncanny valley thing happening but not in a hateful way i think he he does the best that could be done with what's on the page that said i don't believe that this commander-in-chief has genitals so i'm leaving it at six and a half but it's a good performance i just think it's kind of a mess on the page and that's not his fault joe yeah i Jeb, I take your point about how the fine line that the character has to walk before you push 
you know, the rascaliness into, you know, writing, uh, writing an, uh, an excuse note for this guy even more so than the movie already does. And yet I think the movie comes out as a sharper and maybe more disconcerting satire of Bush if Quaid does throw more stuff in there that reminds you that, like, monster though this guy was, did manage to appeal to a lot of people and appeal to people on a very, like, he was the you-want-to-have-a-beer-with-him president, right? Like, And there was a reason for that. And I think if Quaid maybe throws a little bit more of the charm into it, it's a little bit more unsettling because then you can sort of see maybe what those people saw in it. You know, again, it does take the movie into maybe some dark corners it can't write itself out of, and maybe mm. that is better that he doesn't do that. But I think in the absence of that, I think there is something left wanting with the character. He has his moments, but I, I think I'm coming out at a 5 out of 10. All right. Yeah, fair enough. Joe, you're a 10 out of 10. Thank you so much for visiting us uh-huh. at Quaid in Full. Where else can listeners find you? Oh, well, you can listen to my podcast, This Had Oscar Buzz, where my co-host, Chris File, and I talk about movies that were positioned for Oscars and did not get any nominations. And we've just now passed our 200th episode. We are into our third centennial, I guess, of uh, of episodes, and we have no signs of slowing or stopping. So come join us. It's a good time. We are on Twitter at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz, and you can find this had Oscar buzz wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. It's a good show. It's been my my company on uh, walking my dog a lot lately. Like I've been switching between that and uh, Mike Duncan's history of the French Revolution, which is a little bit dislocating because you're <laughs> like, I don't, I mean, when did they Scarlett Johansson gets beheaded, right? You know, like, right. but... Brom. But... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Shitter Island episode was everything that I dreamed when you first started oh, this podcast. Hey. So good. <laughs> Less good. Next time on Quaid in Full, <laughs> Battle for Terra. In the meantime, you can continue avoiding the newspaper and still check out our show notes. And you can follow the podcast on Twitter at Quaid in Full Pod. And you'll get even more content at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Full. Full is hosted by Sarah D. Bunting and Jeb Lund and edited by Jeb Lund. Don't subscribe yet? Try the next stall or wherever you get your podcasts. And rate and review Full so other people can find us. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Well, look at me now, Mom. Look where no talent will get you. You jealous, drunk old bitch. Really, that's... that's great.